Good evening, and welcome to Three Moves Ahead. I am your proto-host, Bruce Garrick. Tonight, we have a return guest, and for that talk, I am joined by Three Moves Ahead founder, Troy Goodfellow. Troy, welcome to your show. <laughs> it's always nice to get a chance uh, to talk to you, Bruce, especially uh, about this game, which you and I had a chance to play uh, just earlier last month. Last month, exactly. And that game was designed by our guest. Our guest is Lee Brimacum Wood from across the Atlantic. Lee. Hello. Hi. Well, Hi. Welcome to the show again. Oh, good to be back. It's been um, three years, is it? Since, three uh, years. Last, we we talked. Uh, yes, we had discussed that uh, May of 2012. You and I talked about your game Bomber Command. And uh, that was a wonderful chat. Now you have a new game. The game is called Wing Leader. It came out, I guess, in late July. My copy actually didn't uh, drop into my hands, I think, until some around August 1st. And then, as Troy mentioned, he and I had the uh, wonderful good fortune of being able to play it against each other in person. So um, we have uh, – well, I have a lot of thoughts. I, I assume Troy does too. Um, this is a game that – uh, has been in the works for some time. Uh, I was actually, uh, I was sort of a, a casual observer of your playtest. I was involved in the playtest, but uh, I was on the the group and and watched some of the discussion. Thought it was very very interesting. Um, th I I have to say that the most uh, notable point of uh, investigation of this game for me was when I logged on to your playtest, looked at all of the um, all the game files, and saw that the board presented the the aircraft this is so this is a game about um uh air combat and uh it represented air combat sideways so it was it, it was looking at the it was looking at uh aircraft as though uh you know you were the 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 bottom of the map was the ground and the top of the map was heaven i guess or at least uh somewhere in the stratosphere and the planes moved sideways across the map and it's not this top-down uh representation of air combat that i think every other air combat game uh uses how how did you first of all talk to us a little bit about how you came to decide to first of all make this game and then make it in the way that you uh ended up making it well um i wish i could lie at this point and uh, claim it's all uh, an original idea and it's it's sprung fully formed as if from uh, Athena from the head of Zeus. Unfortunately, uh, I, I can't. Uh, the The inspiration for the game came from uh, a book I think I talked to you about in our last uh, conversation. Mm. Uh, many, many moons ago, um, this is going back to the mid-late 70s, there appeared a series of articles in an old Airfix magazine. Is this, you know, remember Airfix kits? You know, oh, yes. Air, I, air, I airplane to, kits? Yeah. They put, put them together. Uh, so they, they had, a, had a house magazine, and uh, they had a series of articles. I think this is from like 76 or 77. And uh, it was by a guy called Mike Spick, who went on to have a career writing an awful lot of uh, books about aviation. Uh, and he had this bright idea uh, of, of doing air combat games. And uh, what he did is he'd take the Airfix kit... You know, those, those little air, FX airplane kits. Mm -hmm. uh, and he would make them up. But what he would do is he'd make them in two halves. If you remember, the fuselage would always come in two halves, kind of yes. split down the middle. Right. And he'd make them in two halves. And so what you'd have is two halves of an airplane. And if you put that down on the table, all of a sudden you've got, you know, an airplane viewed from the side. And he came up with a, the lovely skirmish system that was all based on the idea that you're actually looking at the... Uh, uh, the, the, the airspace from the side uh -huh. uh, and uh, uh, he he put this out in the magazine and um, I was I couldn't be about 14 or 15 at the time I can't recall now mm -hmm. but uh, I couldn't make head nor tail of it <laughs> I just love the look of this thing it looked glorious because you saw these these airplanes swooping around uh, from the side and it was gorgeous but I, I couldn't make out the um, how to play the game and uh, it wasn't until about a year or two later, uh, he, he wrote a book that basically took this magazine article and expanded it out. And it's a, a wonderful book called Air Battles in Miniature, Mike Spick. Um, okay. You can probably find copies uh, uh, on eBay or whatever. Okay. Uh, highly recommend it because as a book, it's basically a manual on how to design war games. And it really? takes you through a process of how to uh, abstract uh, war game ideas from from first principles. 
but he also used this as a, a, an armature to describe the, the game. And all of a sudden, I can understand it. I can understand how he made this game. Mm -hmm. And uh, so th th this kind of idea of, you know, the air, air battle scene from the side has been sort of floating around in my head since, since the 70s. Um, and as you say, a lot of the games kind of view the, the the world from above. They view the world from top down. So you look at the aeroplanes and you look at the tops of the aeroplanes in plan form. And uh, I think Spick actually referred to these as skating penguins games. <laughs> okay. They got they got wings and they move, mm -hmm. but they ain't flying. <laughs> uh, whereas I think when you view the view you view the uh, the, the airspace from the side, you have a very, very different perspective. All of a sudden, you're thinking in altitude, which, of course, is what air combat is about. It's about, you know, uh, height, about altitude. Um, and quite often, you, when you read the accounts of, of, of fights, you notice that the, the side that has the altitude advantage often has a big tactical advantage. And this is the sort of thing that doesn't really come out very well in uh, a lot of the kind of skating penguin-style games. So hmm. I'm kind of putting it into... Uh, uh, a board game was kind of like a you know it seemed like it was about time to do something like that so i've stolen this idea from the past i'm claiming it as my own the the one thing i'm doing that's very very different was that the original mike spit game was a skirmish game it was very much focused on uh, individual aircraft dogfighting each other um i think that's actually the dog dogfight game is quite a hard thing to do um but uh, what I did was I actually kind of like rescaled this and I made it um, a game that took place in which the units were larger formations, flights or squadron-sized formations. So instead of being a game about dogfights, it suddenly became a game about interceptions. It became a game about how do you place yourself relative to an enemy, how do you gain a height advantage over that enemy and then exploit that height advantage, and, and things like that. And uh, that's really what the focus of the game is on. It's, it's this very large-scale uh, air battle game in which you're... Um, in maneuvering uh, flights and squadrons around, and you're controlling forces up to the size of wings. Now, the, the, in the, the traditional dogfight game, this, this size of this scale of game is too big. Um, most of the dogfight games can't handle it. There's just too many aircraft, too many things going on. But all of a sudden, going this this scale. I can handle really very, very large fights. If you want to see a German um, Geschwader level attack on a B-17 um, combat wing, we can do that. We've got the scale to do it. And you can start showing all the kind of the, the, the interesting interactions that come from that. Yeah, that's the, this is, um, I think it's, like you said, it's kind of the natural uh, sort of progression of where you'd have to go with this because in some... You're going to have, if you're going to do a dogfight game, you have to represent things in three dimensions. And so if you're going to, you know, much as the, the skating penguins uh, sort of paradigm works because it's a lot easier for people to uh, visualize the idea of uh, altitude, the Z, you can, you can, you can visualize the Z axis more than I think you can uh, sort of visualize the, I guess, what it'd be. Well, I guess it would still be a z-axis, but it's sort of coming at you. So you'd have to, if you were going to do that from the side, you'd have to say, well, you know, this plane is, you know, six, uh, you know, distance units closer to your face or, you know, further away from your face. And that that that's very difficult to sort of picture. Um, so... The, You're um, right. And yeah. in fact, you know, I've, I'm kind of sliding around that whole design problem. I'm kind of ignoring it because because by going upscale, I'm no longer having to deal with those little um, right. dogfight movements in space. So yes. these, these, you know, fine gradings of, of, uh, of pitch and turn and uh, where your nose happens to be pointing in space. And the interesting thing is actually... It um, it makes life a lot simpler. Now, if you think of um, you guys have played a lot of my raid games. You've played things like the Burning Blue and and uh, the Bomber Command. I have, yes, absolutely. And one of the things you notice on those is I design those games so that you represent the the raid as a plotted path across a map. You 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 watch. Uh, you actually plot lines and you see those raids follow those lines. They get to their targets. They turn. They come home. They do dog legs and so on. But essentially, the concept is everybody's flying. The bomber stream is flying along a course. And so all the fighting that takes place takes place along that course, uh, you know, in the vicinity of the bombers. 
So you start translating that into this side view, and at the scale we're talking about, which is you know squadrons and wing level units, and actually that sideways uh, motion doesn't really matter as much. Um, if you like, that third dimension becomes translated into uh, well, well, all squadrons heading towards the bombers are really in some kind of species of collision course or pursuit course. Um, and so can, everything can be represented on a plane. And uh, that's and so we should point out to the to the listeners that this is <clears throat> you sort of force that the planes into this course by taking a map that is, you know, sort of uh, the the planes that are uh, intercepting come in one end and the uh, the bombers come in the other end, and the bombers really – the goal in all the scenarios that I was able to play, and I don't know if it changes, but they, they just fly across the map, right? They're flying from the uh, from their entry point across the map to the place where they're bombing, and then uh, the interceptors really have to have to at some point engage them so so that, that, that course that you talk about in, in, in Bomber Command or in um, Burning Blue, that's just the traversal of the map. By the, it's already plotted. You, here's here's your map. You're you're crossing it. That's right. I mean, this is this is a game that is about escort missions in effect more than anything else. I mean, the you have the interceptors coming in to stop the bombing runs, which are moving you know left to right across the map in a very nice straight progress manner. I mean, they move. It's like like ducks on a shooting gallery board. Well, it's, it's like, it's like a side-scrolling side shooter in the old school. If you remember those right, late bit exactly. games, the board gaming platformer. Yes. <laughs> there you go. And, you know, for the, the the guy with the bombers, he'll have some escorts. And his sort of the big question in a lot of the a lot of the game is how far do I get from my bombers? When do I engage? And for the interceptors, do I take with the fighters first or kind of grab a couple and then hit the bombers? And it's a lot about stopping the bombers from getting across the map. And that's what the game is really about. And that's why I think the side view works so well, because as you said, you really don't have to plot some grand evasive course here. The bombers are going to be going in one direction. They've got a target they've got to hit. Um, so I'm kind of surprised that this hasn't been done in this detail before, because when you see it, it actually makes so much sense. Yeah, the the um the thing that I I thought was interesting, Lee, that was that you were <clears throat> so much of uh so much of air combat board gaming is sort of taken up in trying to design the aircraft so that the the aircraft um uh, I guess characteristics come out and the that the the players who obviously probably have some interest in air combat uh, feel that their sort of uh, sense of historical accuracy is satisfied yeah. by how the how the planes perform and that kind of thing. I, was, I think there's a number of genres of um, war game uh, that are very, very technically oriented. I mean, I think the naval gamers and the air gamers are probably the acme of this, and are probably mm -hmm. the tank guys mm -hmm. uh, are probably getting close as well. Right. But, you know, you, there's a lot of us um, really love the kind of rivet counting side of... Um, uh, of the hobby and we're sort of as you say getting into the detail of these fine distinctions between aircraft um, but I think it's very important for this game particularly because of the large scale to actually move away from that to draw back if you will from that level of detail um, one of the things that become, became very very uh, clear when I started studying World War II air combat in detail was that actually if you took any particular generation of aircraft, let's say fighter aircraft mm -hmm. of various stages of the war, generally speaking, they were very, very similar to each other. The um, aerodynamics uh, was were, were very, very much alike. Uh, there were small differences, of course, but uh, yeah, the aer aerodynamics is very, very similar. The major difference tended to be in terms of the power plants, uh, and that's, I think, a subject I want to get on to later on, but mm -hmm. uh, essentially the aircraft as the generations went rolled on through the war were, were, were very, very similar to each other. So you can, I think you can reduce all that detail, all those little bits of rivet counting and numbers and find differences really down to very simple numbers. And that's one of the things I wanted to do in this game. So it's not a game where you say, uh, you know, this has got a fine edge over that particular aircraft. This is a game which those two classes of aircraft, it's a Spitfire 1, it's an ME109E, they're pretty much the same plane. 
mm-hmm. as far as we're concerned. And that that was very much in the uh, how it washed out in reality. The aircraft didn't weren't enormously different from each other. Your model your model also pays a lot of attention to the quality of the pilots. I mean, and from scenario to scenario, um, as you go through uh, the years, the quality of the pilots seems to be something you're emphasizing quite a bit. That one single expert or ace pilot can, you know, do quite a bit of damage um, against a larger squadron full of green pilots. Oh, I think that's uh, that's very true. Um, you know, going back to this thing about the the detail on the the, the aircraft, uh, a favourite thing that a lot of um, uh, fans and hobbyists like to do is have arguments about you know this aircraft versus that aircraft, and you know the um, uh, the 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 BF one hundred nine had fuel injectors, the Spitfire one had to do a little kind of flip, otherwise its carburetor would uh, would start uh, failing to deliver any fuel to the engine, and these were really important things. Well, actually, they weren't. They weren't. These details weren't that importance except possibly to these handful of really good elite pilots who could make the use of them who could really ring out the best uh, from their their mounts their aircraft uh, an awful lot of the average pilots didn't really push their aircraft to the maximum so these kind of different fine-grained differences in performance didn't come out it was very much what the man in the machine did and one of the things you discover is that I think it's, it's, it actually applies almost to all levels of warfare, but it, it, it's very, very apparent in air warfare that most of the killing is done by very few men. And everybody else is there as a spear carrier, which is not to say they're useless. It's not to say they're worthless. They have a role. And sometimes, you know, mass has its own virtues. But a lot of the actual killing was often done by, you know, a handful of guys. I, I think the the expert and the really top guys who uh, got something like 40% of the kills were something in the region of 4% of the pilots. Mm-hmm. So that gives you an idea of, of, of how um, the, the combat went. Uh, it was very much about how good your guys were, right. which in turn was about how good your training was right. and your doctrine and all these other things that fed into quality. Yeah, I think that I was. I, I think there's a, a book that you and I had discussed briefly that I'm not sure you're a big fan of, but Stephen Bungay's uh, uh, "Most Dangerous Enemy," uh, and, and he does kind of, um, uh, kind of does kind of echo that, saying that you know he he had this many chapters about the Spitfire versus the Hurricane versus the you know the ME109 and and sort of this was the um, this was the advantage here and this was the advantage here and which was his better plane and this blah blah blah. But then he really talked about how the um, you know the experten and the, the the really good pilots. That was really what what made a difference, um, and all these sort of the, the sort of the niggling about this kind of uh, you know well what had did this have you know how many knots of of of, of uh, speed advantage did it have at what altitude or the turning circles or thing like that didn't seem didn't seem to be as important as sort of overall. And uh, I feel that that's how you know I look at your your game. And you look at the cards, you know, that's the first, what's the first thing that a war gamer is going to do? He's, uh, he's going to go look at his favorite planes and he's going to look at the cards and see how they compare, he, you know, for, almost before you've read the rules. And, uh, you know, I'm They'll just play thinking, those top trumps games, don't they? You know, compare, <laughs> oh, what's this versus that? Yeah, yeah who's just better? Go, let's take a look, you know, and uh, so I say, you know, I pull out the, you know, um, the Spitfire, you know, there's this, the Spitfire 1, the Spitfire uh, Mark V. Um, there's the hurricane, there's a hurricane two, we've got the, but, you know, I look at the numbers, I just pulling out some of these cards and they're very similar, right? The, the, uh, the ME 109, the Emil, um, and the Spitfire Mark V and the Hurricane Mark II, they almost, they have, you know, there's a different number here. You know, the, sp- the speed's a little higher for the um, for the ME-109 and the Spitfire at, at a high altitude. Um, the Hurricane's a little slower. The um, uh, the Hurricane has, uh, a Hurricane and the ME-109 have an inferior turn numbers, sort of at medium altitude. But everything kind of, maybe just by one, right? And the the, um, uh, the, the, the the big thing about the Hurricane is has a, has a, a uh, much bigger firepower than the uh, ME109 but um you know they're all it's sort of all within this range so I, I wouldn't expect that any of those numbers would would decisively turn any combat especially if you have multiple uh you know flights or squadrons uh involved so um well actually the, the the combat system is quite subtle uh in many regards so sometimes difference even a small difference of of one can actually have a quite profound effect on mm, okay. on the Talk fight about it. well 
One of the things I, I have when I was developing the combat system was I, I don't, didn't have a lot of data on what actual loss rates were. Hmm. Um, it's very hard to get. It's very hard to, to pick out from, from the, the data and the information that's available. Uh, what we do have, though, is we have exchange rate data. And that's, I think, quite an interesting thing to, to, to get into. Okay. We know roughly how many aircraft we lost to how many aircraft the enemy lost. Now, the numbers can be a little bit hard to interpret, not least because both sides tending to overclaim. But nevertheless, you know, this data tends to be a lot more uh, obtainable and uh, than um, absolute kill numbers, uh, which, uh, like I say, very, 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 very hard to determine in many cases. So uh, when I designed the combat system, it was designed around exchange rates. And obviously, when you get, uh, just to give the listeners some kind of explanation, the way that the combat system works is it works on a differential. You, you take a combat value of one squadron, you take a combat value of another squadron. These combat values may be modified by various situational modifiers, and then you compare them and you get a differential. So it may be that they both have entirely the same number, um, or they might be one different, or two different, or three different, or, or whatever. And this determines the column of the, the combat results table on which you roll. Uh, if you're evens, then you roll in the zero column, both sides roll in the zero column. Uh, and then if you're uh, different by one, then the side with the advantage rolls in the plus one column, the side with the disadvantage rolls in the minus one column. And, and actually, when you start doing an analysis and, and spreadsheet the, uh, the results that, that come out from this, one of the things you start discovering is that uh, as you start going into higher, higher differentials, the exchange rate between the, the, the side with the advantage and the side with disadvantage gets larger and larger and larger. And so you, you, you end up with uh, quite, I think, historical exchange rates uh, coming out from this combat system. But you, you also have, I think, it's, it's a... It's a um... It's a two-die combat system, isn't, isn't that correct? That's right, yes. So you get that lovely uh, yeah. uh, that b b bell curve that comes yeah. off so of you, the so two-die. You, you have a fair, a bit, you know, a, quite a bit of variance there, I think. And as I remember, so, you know, Troy and I were playing it, um, mm -hmm. you know, we'd have to, we'd have to obviously go in through and, and, and actually, like you said, spreadsheet it all out. But um, it seemed like there was, there, was the, there was the differential, but as, as you were sitting around that, you know, sort of, plus one, minus one differential, it really, it really made a difference, uh, you know, sort of what, what modifiers you had. And then, um, and then really, you know, you're, it's up to the die roll. I mean, you had these two dice and, uh, you know, two dice can, can give you quite a wide range of, uh, of, um, effects. Oh, I love two dice. I, yeah. I love two dice systems. And you're right. It's, it's one of the things about two dice system is, is that it's very volatile. And so, Sometimes you get these lovely little bits of narrative where, uh, you know, somebody barrels in, the, the, the BF-109 suddenly come in and they bounce the Spitfires, and somehow because of the dice, the whole situation gets reversed. And, mm. uh, and that's wonderful when those sorts of things happen. Now, you're able to do a lot of other things, too, with the, with the sort of side, uh, side view. You have, um, you have clouds, you have, uh, you, and you just have all the, all the ANSI, the, the, the sun angle. You have all this ancillary stuff that I think uh, you know, really adds to sort of the verisimilitude of the game. Talk about a little bit about how you decided to to put all that kind of thing into the game. Um, I, I, again, looking at a lot of the traditional dogfight games, I do think that they they don't tend to account for environment uh, sufficiently. So clouds tend to get forgotten, um, or the, the the complexity of having to deal with cloud it becomes a bit of a pain in the bum to actually have to mm -hmm. have to try and work it into a dogfight game. But I think with this game, because you can just slap these these uh, uh, cloud markers down, say these squares are full of cloud in these altitude bands and and so on, then um, it become if the terrain fills the airspace naturally, and you start making decisions based on on the, the available terrain. Oh, there's cloud there. Okay. I'm going to escape, and I'm going to escape by diving straight down into that clag, and mm -hmm. hopefully I can get away. Mm -hmm. And again, you know, all those things that you read about in the stories that but never seem to come out in the dogfight games do emerge uh, naturally in in Wing Leader. Uh, I, I suppose one of the things I, I, I've talked to you guys about in the past, and I, I'll, I'll bring it up here again, is that one of the things that motivates me in terms of the designs that I make is that I'm often led by narrative. Uh, I think it's really, really important to me to find uh, the, the armature of a narrative uh, to to put uh, design a game around. 
with games like Downtown, which is my old Vietnam um, Air War yes. game, mm -hmm. the, the narrative there was essentially a narrative about uh, a technical revolution that happened from the, the, the early 60s and the Rolling Thunder campaigns um, uh, with their sort of... Uh, dropping dumb bombs on targets, mm -hmm. just much like World War Two, to the late, you know, the early 70s and the linebacker operations when everybody's got smart weapons and so on. So you have this, this technical revolution. There's a similar thing in Bomber Command. There's a, a technical revolution between the first scenario and the second scenario. The first scenario covering the, covering the, the, the Battle of Berlin, the second scenario covering really the late war mm -hmm. when Bomber Command has matured. And there are narratives like this that make their way into Wing Leader as well. Uh, we've sort of touched on one of them already, which is the aircrew quality. Um, and one of the things I want to do through the scenarios is show how the aircrew quality of the Air Force has changed as the, the war went on. I think another thing, and this, is, this really does impact the, the side view quite a lot, is a narrative about engines, about power plants, which is something that doesn't come up in a lot of discussion about aircraft. I think when you get a lot of the, 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 the hobbyists talking about aeroplanes, they talk about the airframes. Mm -hmm. They talk about the Spitfire. They talk about the, uh, you know, the, the BF-109. They, they think more in terms of the airframe. And they're they aware of the, motor, the, the motors and the engines mm -hmm. and the importance, say, the Merlin engine and the importance of the, the DB-600 series uh, motors for the, the Germans. But I don't think they, they really um, uh, grasp always the absolute vital nature of uh, power plants to the story of World War II aviation and air combat. Uh, this is absolutely key. And I think one of the things um, that the game will do is I think it will, st it will communicate some of this stuff to, to the players. Uh, because the thing about power plants and power plant development as the war went on was not just that they created more power mm -hmm. and that they allowed aircraft to go faster and faster and mm -hmm. being faster meant that they were generally much more effective particularly fighters in fighter mm -hmm. combat but it also meant that um, improvements were made to the power plants in terms of the power they could develop to very high altitude mm -hmm. so one of the grand narratives of the whole war is how in terms of uh, developing power in the upper air in the, the higher altitudes mm -hmm. how the Axis, the Italians, Japanese, and Germans stood still, and how the Allies gained supremacy through uh, their ability to develop power plants uh, and technologies to help them uh, command the upper air. Hmm. And so you have um, the, the Allies essentially developing a series of technologies, um, supercharging uh, and uh, turbocharging. Now, everybody had supercharging, and the Germans had supercharging, the, uh, the Italians and Japanese did, but they, they didn't really develop it to the, 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 the extent that the Allies did. The, the British developed a two-stage, two two-speed supercharger. Um, the Americans had engines uh, like the Packard, uh, uh, sorry, the Allison uh, uh, 1710, which could um, uh, uh, develop, uh, use uh, turbo supercharging and develop a hell of a lot of power in the upper atmosphere. And uh, what that really meant was you get towards the end of the war, which is the, 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 the section that we're now starting to develop in the second volume of this game, and you see that the Allies have uh, a, all the power and all the speed and all the, the, the combat ability in the upper reaches of the atmosphere, and the, the, the Germans and the, the, the Japanese and the Italians don't. And so when you get to the late war, when you've got B-17s who are going in at very, very high altitude, they're actually operating really at the, at the limits of the altitude of, um, uh, of a lot of the, the, the say, the German fighters, the, the, the Fokker Wolf 190s and the, and the BF 109s. Well, the Allies could fly in this area, the, the, this, this uh, arena, very, very uh, happily. And, uh, and so they just dominated. The, the, the airspace, uh, they, just because they were so much more effective in uh, uh, high altitude. Well, that's fascinating because, I mean, you have to, once you're, you're talking about it, it struck me when you say you're talking about the difference between airframe and power plant. Airframe really, really describes sort of turning ability, right? 
Well, yes, amongst other things, mm. and your aero package and all those right. other things that help, you know, uh, you know, really help turn that power you get from the power plant right. into, into you know, a usable fighting right. aeroplane. Maneuver, and maneuverability. And so that's something that you really see better in a, uh, in a kind of like a top-down perspective, right? Because you're always seeing the plane turning, whereas, you know, uh, a power plant has a lot to do with the ability to climb uh, and ability, you know, and how much power, like the, the P-47, obviously, you know, the, the, the combination of power plant and airframe, how, how well it could dive. Um, but those things... Those are things I think that are lost when you're looking at something from top down because you're representing that altitude as just uh, something, you know, an off map kind of marker that's saying, okay, well, I know I dropped this far, but you don't visually see it here. You've sort of inverted it. So there's no, you don't, well, there's, there's no turning in the game anyway, really. Um, But here you're, you, you can actually, uh, you know, show the player. It's always better to show the player things. Uh, and here you're you're visually describing for them. Uh, look how fast I can gain altitude in this aircraft. Look how much more um, you know how many more options I have when my aircraft is up here compared to his aircraft up here. So I think that that sort of that's you 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 chose the uh, you chose the visual sort of milieu of the game very well to to do that. Wouldn't you say, Troy? I mean, how how would you? Yeah, I mean, this is clearly you can hear from this conversation, and as we can see through the rule book and the uh, designers' notes, that you know what you're putting forward, Lee, is you're putting forward uh, what we Bruce and I like to call a, 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 a thesis about what was important in the air war, um, what made uh, what made air battles work, um, and for you, it's you know it's power plants are important and you know little advantages add up by shifting the column back and forth and you can a, a good pilot can turn the tide of a battle just by himself uh the important i mean, i really love one of my favorite uh parts of the rules is the importance of, of just the player choice do i want to dogfight at all because you can just try to back out of it and you might get that might run against you, but you can just try to just stay on target, stay on target, stay with the bombers, get away from the interceptors, don't accept the right to engage. And that plays into, again, the narrative, but also, you know, a lot of the questions that, you know, escort pilots did have to deal with, do they, and that a lot of, you know, bomber pilots had issues with, with fighters. They go off to do their glory-seeking dogfighting, and meanwhile, I'm a sitting duck for the next wave. So this entire explanation that you know is kind of lost i think in the not the glorification of dogfights but you know dogfights are kind of the they're the, the the fun part of air combat you know it's the whole world war one myth and I, I really do like this i did the dogfights are only a part of this game it's only only i mean it's a specific subcomponent that you know where a lot of the uh, battles and the attrition happens, but it's not where all of the attrition happens, and it's not necessarily the focus of the game, but it's something you can choose to uh, do or not do. And it, but it also, I, I want to jump in there real quick because there's yeah. also other you know considerations like Lee when when Troy and I were playing. One of the things that you know we played a scenario where I was trying to vector some uh, some fighters onto his bombers, and I couldn't get the roll to get my my ground controllers to move the sort of the the uh, the, the 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 vector right and so they were kind of circling in one place and i didn't have any visual tally so i was trying to get the the, the ground controls like look no 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 go over here and and the, and the fighters were just you know they were green fighters first of all uh, but i just couldn't get that you know that those guys on the radio net to respond and, and that's something that i had never really thought of in a in a that is, in air combat that game. is such an important i think and actually very interesting uh mechanic i've never seen it before either but i mean it's everything we know about uh, air defense uh, and the importance of radio uh, in the air war, especially as the war progressed, makes that such an obvious inclusion. It's a very simple rule as well. It's not exact. It's not adding a whole lot of detailed, complicated chrome. It's you know, it's a it's a die roll. Do they get the message? Do they not? And how does this affect what your plan is going to be for your planes for the wing leaders? Well, when I am. Um... When I was making Burning Blue many many years ago, uh, about the, a game about the Battle of Britain, um, I did chat to a number of um, uh, veteran pilots from that from the battle, and uh, I specifically chatted to them about the the, the radios. Mm-hmm. And those early high frequency radios were really um, uh, not very good. Um, in fact, uh, they only had a range around about uh, thirty miles. TR nine D. High-frequency radio had a range of about thirty odd miles. It was uh, engine could cause all sorts of interference mm-hmm. to radio signals, um, so it could be very hard to communicate with the ground. 
Um, so there's, and there were many parts of the chain that could go wrong uh, and prevent uh, an order being given or make, uh, make an, a wrong order be given. Um, so things like, you know, the radar not picking up the targets correctly or missing a target, uh, the, the controller not interpreting the information correctly or giving an incorrect order or the radios not working. Um, uh, there's, this also became apparent when I started studying things like some of the early um, Pacific battles of uh, of 1942, when the uh, American uh, uh, fighter direction officers, the, the controllers on board the carriers, were still learning their trade. And you, it was very clear that some of them were very, very good and some of them were not so good. And so it could come down to an individual controller um, uh, uh, you know, his judgment or giving an order at the right time as to whether uh, a squadron would be vectored onto a target. So, in all these things are kind of just, are just wrapped up in this very simple single die roll. You know, you've got a, a, a ground control intercept level. Do you beat this die roll value or not? Yes, no. And if you do, then you can place the vector. And if not, then you miss. Right. That's, and that was something I had never really thought of, but, uh, you know, in with, with, happened to be uh my uh soviet uh pilots were trying to uh vector onto um troy's uh you know german uh transports they were to play the stalingrad scenario the stalingrad airlift and uh they just they couldn't find them they just sat there happily you know we eventually got in a fight with uh, the escorts but we were never really able to bounce the bombers because by the time uh we got a visual tally and figure out where they were uh, they were you know they were kind of gone so um, it just well that, that was Stalingrad for you. I mean that was yeah. when the, the the Russians were still learning their trade. I mean that, that was the, one of the early deployments of their own ground control system and mm-hmm. their, their, their their early networks of radars and and uh, ground control and they they were not very good. They were still learning. So that yep. I think was a factor that that made its way into the into the the, the die roll uh, value there. Um, mm. It wasn't until the following year. Um, wasn't until about forty three in the spring of forty three in the battles. Over the Kuban, mm-hmm. they really began to tighten that up and really began to learn how to use fighter direction effectively. Yeah, well, it certainly didn't use it effectively against uh, against Troy because Troy just uh, zipped right off the uh, right off the map for a decisive victory. But uh, I'm just a superior bomber. Commander. Yes, that must be it. That must be it. <laughs> oh dear! So you had a scenario in which your your poor little uh, poor little Russian fighters were just kind of like strolling around the airspace, all lost. Were they? Oh, they did, and then they, then uh, then so of course uh, Troy uh, noticed that, so he essentially bounced them with uh, with the uh, expert um, with the expert uh, FW uh, sorry the uh, ME 109s that he had, and tied them up nicely, and uh, you know just kind of it was kind of almost like a like an American football game. The blockers just uh, you know completely blocked the defense, and the running backs just went. Through the hole and off to Stalingrad. So, but you actually, but you won those fighter skirmishes. I did, but it didn't really make any difference you, because yeah, the, the 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 transports got through. My fighters held you up just long enough. I ended up losing a couple of mines, mm-hmm. um, and one got straggled. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, the whole point was just since the since the goal is to get the transports right. through, um, you just do what you yes, got to do. Mission accomplished. So there you go, yay! But um, it, you know, and, and the, uh, talk a little bit more, uh, Lee, about how you how you wanted to represent because <clears throat> there are these control sheets, right? I mean, the 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 counters that are on the map are squadrons, so you have to represent sort of this incremental damage to the squadron. You have loss counters, and you have you know stragglers where you do some damage, and there's you know the um, sort of the picture of the of the uh, aircraft that's damaged kind of trailing behind. You have a lot of kind of control markers that go onto a, uh, well, some of the control markers go actually onto the map and some of them go onto this, um, you know, player control pad. How, the how wing you, display, yes. Wing display, yes. How, how did you decide to put that all together? Because there's clearly sort of a, a way in which you're trying to display the information. Uh, what was What was your goal there? My goal was to try and avoid using any kind of paper record. Hmm. As simple as that. I, I remember when I did uh, downtown back a long time back in the day. You yep. actually have a big pad, sure. and you you have to note in what your fuel is on various squadrons yep. and what weapons they've got left. And it's, yep. it's it is a little bit laborious, and I wanted to avoid that. So it was uh, trying to come up with a nice physical system that would would manage that very very easily. Uh-huh. And uh, so many of these things seem to lend themselves to right. We just plonk markers on there. Okay, every time you shoot down a uh, an enemy, you get little parachute marker for the pilot who's wafting down mm-hmm. 
or maybe he isn't. Maybe he, was, he went down with his plane. Who knows? Right. But uh, yeah, you get little markers showing that you, you've you've got a kill. Um, and so many of these other other little elements as well just lend, loaned themselves to having a marker put on there. So it just seemed to seemed a nice easy way to to manage a lot of information. The um, but one of the things you don't get is sort of the personalization of that uh, information, right? So you don't have, oh, you know, this plane racked up another kill and, you know, this this pilot is, you know, going to become an ace and that kind of thing. So you had, there's some things that were sacrificed there. Oh, yes. I mean, there's a, definitely a level of, of detail that gets sacrificed. I think we come to that kind of part of the design process where you, it's really about the scale. Um, and in many cases, the clue is in the, the title, uh, you know, the game's named Wing Leader. We're about managing wings. And, and generally, the um, you know the kind of the two up, two down rule when it comes to um, uh, modeling um, or simulating uh, echelons? No, I don't. Well, it's, it's basically you you command the echelon immediately below you, and then you kind of have a rough idea of what the echelon below beneath that is doing, but you okay. don't necessarily know that in detail. Mm -hmm. And it kind of works up the other way as well. I mean, you're obviously commanded by the echelon above you, and you only have a kind of a vague idea of what the echelon above that is is up to, mm -hmm. uh, and what its its high level objectives are. And so, um, if you see this game from the perspective of the wing leader, as the wing leader, I'm commanding my wing. My resources are my squadrons, which can in some cases break down into constituent flights. And um, so I command that echelon. But actually what's happening within those echelons, I've got a rough idea what's going on, but I'm not commanding individual dudes um, to, to do, do various things. I'm just you know, commanding the, the, the one echelon that's, that's immediately below me. And so, um, yeah, you, you lose that level of detail, you're right, but actually that's entirely appropriate. I mean, most games, I think, that, that apply the, 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 the kind of two-up, two-down rule um, should be doing that kind of thing. Mm. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you just have a, a player control uh, card with uh, a bunch of counters on it, but that's, you know, that's, so this this squadron is down like five planes, but that's that's kind of, you know, you don't really... There's no differentiation made, obviously, about which planes they are, which you know, which which pilot. It's just this kind of aggregate sort of uh, combat uh, combat power. Um, yeah, and that, that, that nice thing about that is, of course, it leaves it to the players to kind of add in their own narrative. I mean, we do have the concept right. of like individual pilots represented as counters, in that we have we represent expert and these these aces as individual counters. Right. But um, in many cases, they're kind of like they're a resource for the squadron. Uh, they are the thing that gives that squadron its particular edge. Yes. Uh, and actually, very probably, they're the ones who are doing most of the killing in that mm -hmm. squadron when it does shoot things down. Um, but, uh, you know, so we, we do kind of have this little little representation of, of individual pilots in some cases. But, yeah, I mean, we, we, um, we don't really dig down into that detail, so it's up to the player to supply that narrative. Well, I would point out to the, to the listeners also that you do you do try to, to, to grab that, that uh, individual um, hook by uh, taking the uh, the pictures of, of some of these uh, you know ace pilots and putting them on the actual expert counter and that counter goes on the so so you you have this sort of the ability for the player to to like you said you know write his own narrative about uh, you know what the squadron is and who the pilot is and but but it's just a marker really for the squadron and it modifies the strength but um, it's not like you're that counter you're interacting and making that counter do specific things it's just a marker for for the for the squadron um i'd like to ask us i mean one of my favorite things about this game and i think about the games that i really really like in general is just the quality of the art and the quality of the components I mean, mm. you have yes all these spitfires but each spitfire counter looks different from the other spitfires even if they're the same type of spitfire because pilots and wings had their own uh, distinct paintings so this there's a, quite a lot of variety for for uh, uh, this a basic counter sheet of plain profiles but they all look completely different from each other oh yes every every counter there is unique um and uh, it was a monumental effort to do uh i did about uh, 75% of the aircraft art something like that uh, i had a uh, a good chum, um, Ian Wedge, who did the very, very sterling work um, uh, doing the other the other 25% or so. And in fact, I gave him the really difficult st things to do, like the Italians, okay. which he just loved doing mm. the Italians to bits. Mm. So uh, did a wonderful job on them. Um, yeah, it was, it was a monumental effort. Uh, I think the... 
it was a decision I kind of made early on, and it's something that came out from simply the fact of having a side view. Uh, if you, you're familiar with RAF aircraft, you know that if you look at the, the RAF fighters, uh, or any bombers as well from the side, they have these enormous great squadron codes painted on the side. Now, in the, the top-down game, the Skating Penguins game, you can kind of get away with just doing one bit of art, uh, you know, giving it a camo scheme, and then you can just kind of um, uh, copy and paste that throughout a counter sheet. But if you're looking stuff from the side, that becomes very, very obvious if every, all the, the, the squadron codes are duplicated, all the schemes are duplicated. And so it was just kind of like an obvious step to, all oh, right, every one of these counters is individual. And I don't think at first I realised how big the task would be, but then it, be, it did become very apparent how huge that, that job. Uh, and we did it. And, uh, and we're going to do it again when the second volume of the game. That was um, going to be my question. Are you, are you able to continue that? Oh, yes, we are able to continue it. Uh, that, that, I've got a better idea now of, of the workload. Mm -hmm. um, and it's going to be laborious. It's one of the reasons why the game won't be coming out until next year. Mm -hmm. uh, the second volume won't be coming out until next year because it's just an enormous art job. Yeah. But I think the, 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 the payoff is amazing. I mean, you said it yourself. I mean, every single counter is different. I mean, I was able to do things like, you know, one of my friend's uh, Spitfires, um, the, the one that he flew in the Battle of Britain, I was able to have his Spitfire in the game. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that was kind of, kind, of, a, kind of a nice thing to do. And you, you have these little, little star, star aircraft or aircraft with interesting color schemes. I mean, I had enormous fun uh, drawing shark mouths onto uh, the, the mm -hmm. noses of some of the P-40s. P-40s, yeah. Kitty Hawks and things, mm. and so uh, yeah, I mean it's it's, it's great. Uh, I think the wonderful thing about the kind of World War Two air combat air warfare was there's still quite a lot of heraldry in it. Maybe not quite as much as World War One, but there's still quite a lot of heraldry, and it's great that we're able to get that onto these counters. And I don't think you see that heraldry in the, the kind of skating penguins views and the skating penguins counters, but you do get to see it in these side views. So uh, yeah, we're doing our, our damnedest to to deliver um, deliver that, but boy oh boy, it's a lot of work. Mm. Believe me. Well, talk talk a little bit about what's going to be in the next game. Well, basically, it's the same game, um, but we're taking it on into the late war, and I think this is where some of these grand narratives that uh, were sort of mentioned earlier start to pay out. Uh, the narrative of the, the power plants and the engines. It's not really very apparent in the first volume of the game, whereas everything is roughly similar. But in the second game, I think what you're going to see is where the Allies and the uh, Axis really began to diverge. And the the Allies suddenly have a lot of these late war aircraft. We get things like the, P, the, the P-51 Mustang, the late model Spitfires like the Spitfire 14. You get things like the, uh, the P-47 um, uh, Thunderbolt uh, and so on, with these really big, powerful engines, who, who could uh, drag these aircraft right up into the upper air and and command these um, uh, command the uh, the upper atmosphere, and the poor old Germans um, really had to start keep running out of puff above about twenty thousand feet, so they can't quite get up there. So you end up in a situation where actually the, the, the BF-109s could kind of do it. They were very lightweight, and, uh, but they, because they were lightweight, they weren't very heavily armed. And so this creates a really interesting problem for the Germans. And uh, one of the things you see, again, in the, if you read the, the historical narratives, that doesn't come out in dogfight games, but I think will come out here, is how the Germans reacted to um, the, the the Allied bomber threat, particularly the bomber threat, uh, you know, the daylight raids over the Reich uh, when the American Air Force came over, um, they because they because power plants uh, were very very hard to de to develop. They were very very hard to get more power out of them. It's very hard to develop power at very high altitudes. The the, the Germ Germans pretty much found themselves having to use the same airframes throughout the war. I mean, the two big fighter airframes uh, of fighter types that they used through the war were, were obviously the BF-109 and uh, the Fokker-Wolf-190. And these were the two, two main fighter types. And, uh, they, uh, and as they go through the war, they find that the, 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 the Fokker-Wolf-190s can't get up that high. Hmm. The, 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 the BMW engines that they had, um, uh, BMW 801, if I, I think, something like that, uh, 800 series, just could not get up to the higher altitudes. They were really starting to run out of puff at about at or just below the altitudes at which B-17s operated. The BF-109s could go up higher, but 
because they were lightweight airframes, they couldn't carry a lot of armament. And so you had this interesting little little dilemma. You had the, the Fokker Wolves, which could just about barely reach the B-17s. They could carry quite heavy armament. Um, and you had the, the, the BF-109s, which were lightweight, couldn't carry a lot of armaments, and so weren't really good at taking, bomb taking on the bombers, but they could get a bit higher. And so the Germans kind of split them into what they called heavy fighter forces and light fighter forces. The idea was that the, the Fokker Wolves would be the bomber killers, and the, um, the, the 109s, the Messerschmitt 109s, would be the, the fighter cover trying to protect the, 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 the bomber forces. And um, it was kind of interesting the specialization that went on as the war, went, as the war continued. Uh, so you get around about the spring of 44, um, the uh, FW 190A8 comes out, which is a quite heavily armed version of the, uh, uh, of the, um, uh, the, the Fokker Wolf. Uh, and they then develop it even further by adding a ton more armor and loads more uh, uh, guns to create the um, uh, R8 series Sturmbock. And this was uh, a fighter that had enormous amounts of firepower. It was the kind of thing you really needed to take down uh, a B-17. But it was not going to perform very well. If it got into a dogfight with a, with a Mustang, it was going to be taken, to, you know, carved a carved to pieces. So, you know, the Germans were very reliant on having these lightweight uh, BF109s covering them. And that was kind of like the pattern of what they, they did during, you know, up to the end of the war. Whereas, of course, the Allies, they could get, you know, they could easily get above uh, 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 20,000 feet. They were able to go up to 30,000 feet or more with these very, very powerful uh, uh, engines, like the Griffin engines on the Spitfires and, uh, and obviously the, the, the Packard Merlins on the Mustangs and so on. And they, 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 were, they just made mincemeat of, of Fokker Wolves when they could get hold of them. Uh, and it's, it's, it's interesting, I think, the game will bring this narrative out in a way that I don't think you'll have seen before in, in much in the dogfight games. Hmm. How about the jets? Uh, well, yes, the jets, uh, jets and rockets, for that matter. Uh, yet we're going to have jets in there. I don't think you can have a late war uh, uh, air combat game without having the, the, the ME-262. And um, uh, looking forward very much to doing the playtesting on the scenarios with these and seeing how, the, how this works out. Uh, they were, in many ways, optimised for bomber killing. They were very, very fast. They had an enormous gun battery, a really powerful gun battery of, uh, I think it was the MK-108 uh, uh, 30mm guns, which were just devastating uh, battery of guns. Um, but of course, it was they could never get them up up there in numbers, and, and that was the, the problem towards the end. Uh, the, the jets arrived too late. The jets arrived with, um, again, go back to power plants, a very immature power plant. Um, the immature doctrine. Um, they weren't, didn't really have the infrastructure to support them. I mean, there's a lot of the literature talks about, oh, um, how Hitler managed to cripple the ME262 program by insisting that it was a bomber. Well, actually, there's a very good analysis by Alfred Price um, that more or less says that the, the the decision to turn the ME262 into a into a bomber may have delayed the program by as much as two or three weeks which I don't think is really enough to have turned the tide of the war, to be, be quite frank. The fact is that all these new technologies were very, very immature. The engines in particular, the engines had very, very short lifespans, particularly compared to the British jet engines of the time. Um, so uh, with the best will in the world, they, they couldn't have gotten the ME262 out into service any faster than they did, and when they did, when they it did come out, they just couldn't deploy it in numbers, and yeah. that was for a whole variety of reasons. Well, they'll, they'll make, they made like a thousand of the things, and um, you know, not that many of them actually flew. Hmm. And some of those they actually did uh, did make got lost in the post. <laughs> in what well, sense? They, well, they had problems uh, because they didn't have much in the way of fuel. They couldn't fly. Um, the uh, the new fighters to the frontline squadrons. So uh, in many cases, what they do is they pack them up. They took the wings off, pack them up onto flatbed trucks, mm -hmm. and 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 took them by train. Mm -hmm. And of course, this is like the very late war when the the, the bomber command and uh, uh, United States Army Air Forces were just knocking the hell out of the German. Um, rail system, mm -hmm. uh, the big attack on transportation, and basically, uh, you know, these things were getting lost in transit for Got various it. reasons. So, uh, in many cases, a lot of the airframes just didn't turn up. Hmm. 
But uh, yes, the, the yeah the, the Germans were never able to do you know get these things off the ground in in the kind of numbers they needed to really devastate the uh, bomber formations. If they did, it may have been uh, been an interesting story, but it's one of those what might have beens. So we're going to see these big uh, big set piece battles uh, of Eighth uh, Air Force versus uh, versus the German fighter um in uh, in the subsequent game. Oh, absolutely. In fact, I've I've put together recently a couple of big scenarios. There's, there's a great book by, uh, I think it's Jeffrey Ethel and Alfred Price on Mission 250, which was the first big American raid on, on Berlin. Uh, and very interesting because it does it did showcase the the the, the, the tactics of of the time, and so you've got the um, American bomber stream coming in with these you know the B-17s all and B-24s all organised in these big combat wings, and in defence the Germans organised essentially two very very large attacks. Um, the first attack was with a very large group of fighters. Um, I think it was something like about eighty or ninety fighters in a very in a big formation and just came straight head on at uh, at one of the combat wings and and tore into it and there's very little escort at that point and there's there's a, a the the book goes into the reasons to why there wasn't much escort but there there were there are a whole bunch of reasons why but the Germans got fortunate they tore into a combat wing and just just took it took it apart it was quite horrible and then uh, slightly later uh, just as the raid began to approach berlin they did another one of these big attacks now this second attack was kind of interesting because it wasn't just a, a big load of, of single-engine fighters. What it was, it was a lot of two-engine fighters, the destroyers, the Zestorers. Um, so they had a lot of uh, BF-110s and MU-410s uh, equipped with rockets, for air-to-air rockets, uh, and they came at the, the raid. And they were supported by quite a lot of, of um, single-engine fighters, uh, BF-109s. And uh, the difference here was that they the, they intercepted the head of the American raid just as the escort had changed over, and a whole bunch of fresh escort. It was something like about a couple of fighter groups worth of fighters suddenly arrived, just as the Germans uh, launched this enormous attack with their destroyers, and it was just a mess. It was mm. <laughs> it was a quite a fight. Uh, um, uh, blew up at that point, as you can probably imagine, when mm-hmm. the uh, the Mustang started making hay amongst these twin-engined uh, fighters. Interesting. What's the book called? Um, that was called Target Berlin, and it's uh, by uh, uh, Jeffrey Ethel and Alfred Price. I highly okay. recommend it. It's a good. It's a good one. I keep running it. I keep running into Alfred Price's name in a bunch of different things. There was stuff uh, for the um, Battle of Britain as well. Is he is he a well known air sort of oh, air yes. combat scholar? Is that what what he is? Oh yes, he, he he's one of the gold standards of of writing about uh, air combat. In fact, um, uh, one of the kind of source books, uh, or two of the source books, I should say, really for. Um, designing wing leader came from him. He did a uh, a wonderful book um, about uh, fighters, and it was called World War Two Fighter Conflict. It's a very slim little volume, and he did another one um, called uh, oh, I'm trying to look it up here. It's the the bomber in World War Two. They're really old books. They came out in the seventies. Uh, you'll find them on uh, you know probably on eBay or on secondhand on Amazon or wherever. You know, go to your 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 usual retailer. They're quite slim volumes, and they're absolutely packed with information. Um, he goes into um, not just tactics, but I think you know a lot of stuff to do with uh, uh, design of fighters, of power plants, uh, weapon systems, all sorts of things. Uh, and I think it's a really good overview of the subject at the kind of level, the kind of high level that you need for wing leader. It's not necessarily the detailed level of the, you know, the rivet counting, but it's that high level of, you know, these were the big factors that influenced the, uh, the fighting. So, uh, yeah, those were two, uh, I think, core references. And I think they are actually mentioned in the um, uh, recommended reading in the, uh, I think it's in the rule book. So, uh, you know, do, do look out for those ones. Yeah, I, lo- I love your recommended reading. You had the, um, you, you, as I note, notice now, I didn't I didn't read before, but it says in Inspirations, the first inspiration for Wing Leader is Mike Spick's miniature skirmish game. So I'll have to look that up. And then you've got um, you've got Alfred Price. Yeah, you've mentioned you've mentioned all that stuff in here. That's great. I, lo- I love when uh, when designers sort of 
give us a, a, a view into what they were reading because then I can go read it and see if I draw the same conclusions. But that's always that's always nice to do. So, yeah, I mean, uh, I think you're going to see in the second volume is um, a lot of this lovely late, late war stuff. All these wonderful late war aircraft start coming out. So you get, you know, your Mustangs and your P-47s. And for, you know, for somebody like me who's British, then we've got things like Tempests and Typhoons and mm -hmm. other things that make us really, really excited. Plus, of course, you know, we've got the Japanese. We're going to have Eastern Front, um, you know, Yak-9s, LA-5FNs, all those kind of wonderful things, uh, late war Sturmoviks, P-2s. Uh, it's going to be full of stuff, um, and of course the other th the other thing is the other bit of the narrative that we've sort of talked about already is that narrative about the pilot quality, because I think the other great big story of of Wing Leader really is is not only how how um, uh, the aircraft designs and power plants diverged, but also how aircrew quality evolved as the war went on. And so you have you, well, one of the things we show, I think, over the two games is how at the beginning of the war the um, the, the Germans and the Japanese had had very, very well-trained air forces, and, and as the war went on, they got worse and worse and worse and worse, until at the end, really, they were quite poor. And uh, whereas with the Allies, it's, uh, it's very much the opposite story. Is they, they start out, not poor, but they start out pretty much at a similar level to the, the Axis, but then as the war goes on, get better and better and better, until at the end, they have these very, very effective um, uh, fighting forces, very effective air forces. Troy, what uh, what did you take out of our uh, little back and forth with uh, with our game? I mean, you, I I, think I I really enjoyed it. I mean, it's a game that I think there's a lot of. It's a complicated. I mean, it looks complicated when you start it, like all of these games, of course. Do. But once you get into realizing that the important things are, as Lee said, you know, shifting the column one way or another, it's how do I get this advantage? Do I dive? Do I go into the clouds? And it's a matter of getting these factors in on, on each turn. Um, it's it's really all about shifting the columns. And because there is not a whole great deal of variation, uh, positioning matters in a way that is really great to see. And the games don't take that long to play. We could have played a couple uh, if we were playing so many other games mm -hmm. that weekend. Uh, we could probably could have played another three or four sure. quite easily yep. uh, once you understand how everything works. It's quite a... It's a, it's a simple game. It is beautiful to look at. Um, the range of scenarios is good. And I'm really looking forward to the next version, looking forward to the late war stuff, because that's when you get, you know, the really, really big raids and the technology starts to show in special ways. Um, this is a... I, this is a there, I haven't seen many games that look like Wing Leader. Mm -hmm. Um and it's such a simple look. It's just a, it's just a grid, and then you put things on top of it. It's like, wow, this just makes this is so clear. This yeah. is so obvious. We can build and such different stories using the, the using the counter mix, right? Yeah, I mean the the the, the different types of bombers. Well, what types of bombers are you fighting? Well, that matters. Um, is this just a straight intercept? How many? What's the fighter bomber ratio you're encountering? Uh, what is the radio conditions? Where is the sun? Is it overcast? All of these tales will spin out very, very differently, even from the same scenario, you know, one to the next. The die rolls will lead to either great smashing victories or, you know, one guy turning it around or in our case of uh, the game we played, the transports just sneaking away uh, because they get the advantage. Uh, this is a... It's a game that I, I recommend if people who are interested in the air war, who've played other air war games, to certainly check this one out. And there's a reason we have Lee on the show uh, when he does new games, because these are such, it's such an interesting part of the war. Mm -hmm. And there really aren't a lot of computer games that deal with this in interesting ways, which I think is a problem. Mm -hmm. um, really, the, the board game space where all this interesting stuff is going on. So it's really great that Lee can come on as often as he does, yeah. even if it is every three years. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I do hope that, um, you know, the second volume I'm hoping will be out next year. So who knows? Maybe another opportunity for us to have another chat uh, uh, around then. That would be great. I would love to. So, Well, Lee, thank you so much for your time. I know that it's difficult to coordinate these with, uh, you know, the time difference, but uh, us being on different sides of the Atlantic. But it's always wonderful to talk to you. We have, uh, you know, I have the game. Uh, I've played it, and now I'm going to try to – I will re uh, – I'm, I'm re-energized in my attempts to get it to, to the game store and get people to play it with me. So uh, 
I will do that. You um, are they taking? Is is the is the second volume already up on P five hundred or? Um... Oh yeah, it's uh, it's on P five hundred. I'm sure that you can stick a, a link to it um, yep. on your website. Yep, we can certainly do that. That uh, and what's it going to be called? It's going to be called uh, Wing Leader Supremacy, ah. 1943 to 1945. Okay, this one is Victories, Wing Leader Victories, 1940 to 1942. So now it's Supremacy. So they were, they were telling the story already. Yeah, so I think when we got these two games out, that will be the core set of the game. And then and after that, we can start thinking about what kind of expansions we want to do. Oh, with, uh, you know, um, uh, lesser known, you can, you can even have 1939 in there somehow. Oh yeah, I mean you, we can start doing all sorts of things. I mean, it's a, it's a shame there's uh, there's so much war and there's uh, you know only so many th only, only so many things I can cram in the box, and so mm -hmm. there are the things that inevitably got left out. I mean, sadly we had to leave out the French, which is a shame because I, I think they're they're very important. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, I'm hoping that in a, at some point in the future we can do those guys justice. Yeah, excellent. Spanish Civil War. Yes, Spanish Civil War. <laughs> yes, well, and there's, so even um, even Nomenhan is uh, is possibly a future scenario. Oh, so, really? Uh, oh, big great. Soviet uh, Japanese clash over Nomenhan. Yeah, there was a big air battle there. Oh, major major air battle. Yes, excellent. All right, I love to see that. Okay, guys. Well, thank you, uh, Lee, for coming, and Troy. Thank you for uh, letting me uh, arrange this with Lee, and uh, we will hopefully see uh, Lee again. As soon as uh, Wing Leader Supremacy comes out, in the meantime, I'm going to try to get the game on the table some more. So thanks a lot, guys, and everybody have a good night. Good night, all. It's been a pleasure. Bye.